communicate. This is uh, a family Sunday, which uh, if you're new here, um, every month that has five Sundays in it, the fifth Sunday, we give off our children's church workers so they can actually sit in the pew and our four and five and six and seven-year-olds are all in here with us. Normally that's up to parental discretion, but on a Sunday like today, they're all here. And so, uh, you know, normally a sermon, it's like a third explanation of the text and a third stories and a third application to our lives, except on Family Sunday when it's like 90% stories. Uh, And that's so that those of you who are young at heart, uh, which frankly, some of you have PhDs, and I watch your face and I can go and give you the details of the technicalities of the Greek text and you glaze over and you've got a terminal degree and I tell a story and your face lights up. So that's really for all of us. We're going to talk today about love. We're in Matthew chapter 20, which we'll look at in just a second. But uh, um, I want to begin uh, uh, with this uh, uh, story. Uh, It's a true story. Um, Have you ever been up in a bell tower? I think we have a a photo here. If we can jump ahead to that photo of a bell tower. Okay, let's skip through the text. I'll read it and they can listen. You ever been up in a bell tower? This is not a bell tower I have been in. Um, but I do remember going to uh, Granada, Nicaragua every January, and I remember a year and a half ago, um, I was with uh, Gene Campbell and Aaron Odell and Steve Begany, and we were in Granada, Nicaragua, and there was La Merced, uh, one of the historic churches there, and if you pay them a dollar, they'll let you go up in the bell tower, and so you climb up this very narrow, little windy sketchy, scary, hope an earthquake doesn't happen, hope the volcano doesn't erupt while you're going up this bell tower staircase that eventually gets really steep and you got to watch your head so you don't smack it. And you get up to the top and it's sort of like this. There is this massive, massive bell and then it's open in four directions. And I remember we were up there and uh, then some, some maybe like 13, 14 year old kid pops his head up and says something in Spanish and nobody, it's all Germans and Americans and Brits up there so we couldn't really understand what he was saying because we all took French in high school, but, um, but he then starts motioning, and, we're, and he's holding this rope, and we're getting this sense of, okay, he's going to ring the bell. And so you get as far away from that thing as you can. You're literally like leaning over the balcony, so you, and because then he starts moving this thing with his rope, and go to the next slide, because it shows you what's in there. It's called a clapper. And it's this big, massive metal thing that strikes the side of the bell again, and then it strikes it again, and it strikes it again, and it reverberates, and it's insane. Well, let me tell you a story. Uh, This was back in the 1600s. Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector of England during the British Commonwealth, sentenced a soldier, a young soldier, to be shot to death for his crimes. And the execution was to take place at the ringing of the evening curfew bell. However, it got time for the execution, and the soldiers were there. They were lined up. They were ready. He was tied up against a post, ready to to face his maker for his crimes. And yet the bell never sounded. And they stood there, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and they couldn't understand what had happened. And finally, the soldiers are, are giving up, and they send somebody up into the bell tower... And, and they bring down this young man's fiance, And she stands before Lord Cromwell as he asks her to give account for her actions. And, 
as he looks upon her and she weeps and describes her love for her fiancé who is to be put to death. He sees her body is black. Her body is blue. She is bleeding all over. She had held on to the clapper of that bell. And as they rang it to signal the death of her husband-to-be, her body took the full brunt of that clapper, crashing up against the inside of that bell again and again and again. And Lord Cromwell saw her. He saw her tears. He saw her bruised and bleeding hands. His heart was touched, and he said, Madam, your lover shall live because of your sacrifice. No curfew shall sound this night. It's a story of self-sacrificial love, giving up her health, her security, possibly even her life, for the sake of another. I'm going to go read Matthew 20, and I want you to just listen along. It's just verses 17 to 28 in your pew Bible. You can find this on page 1530 if you want to follow along there, because it's a story in which Jesus talks about the love that he is going to show and the love to which he calls you if you are a Christian, if you follow Jesus, if he is your Savior. There is a high and impossible calling of self-sacrificial love which he has placed upon your shoulders and says, you must do this. This is who I have made you to be now. I have set you free for this. We're going to look at the love he calls us to give and then we're going to ask, how is it that we can give away that same kind of love? It's Matthew 20. I'm going to begin in verse 17. Listen along, if you will. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and he said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's two of the apostles' mom, probably Jesus' aunt, if you follow the relationships. The mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, because they're behind this. She knelt down and she asked a favor of Jesus. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard about this, They were indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called all of them together and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their high officials, they exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, if you can picture this, Jesus has just talked about suffering a horrifying death. Two of his followers then come up and they say, we want to be your top officials. Better that they get Jesus' aunt to come and say, I want you to promise that these are going to be your two top officials, the president and the chancellor of the kingdom of God at the end of the age. And they really don't have any idea what they're asking for. And so Jesus talks to them about what real love looks like and what it's really going to cost for him to love us and what it will cost for us to love each other. So what does it mean to love another person? What does it look like to love your classmates? What does it look like to love your teachers, to give them the kind of love that they need you to give, the kind of love that God put you in their classroom to give them? What does it look like to love your coworkers with the kind of love that Jesus says only you can give to them because you're the one that he's made their coworker? What does it look like to love your brother or your sister, to love your mom or to love your dad, to love your kids or to love your spouse? What does it look like to love people who hate you and who talk badly about you behind your back? What does it look like to love another person? What does Jesus teach us here about love? We're going to look at three things. The first is that Jesus says that love is doing what's best for other people. Uh, It's pretty obvious, it's pretty straightforward, but we in our culture tend to think of love as something romantic, something emotional. Uh, You say, oh, the topic's love. You immediately think, oh, he's talking about romance or he's talking about affection. Those are different things. Love is not the same thing as those. Love is easier to give when you feel affection. Love is easy to give when you've got the, 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 the rose-colored glasses of romantic feelings, and yet those never last very long, maybe a couple years. They may come and go, but Jesus tells us to love and to love everybody, even to love enemies. Yeah, and we tend to underestimate what that means. You know, I tend to think love is the absence of malice. If I'm not being mean to you, If I'm not trash-talking you, if I'm not disrespecting you, if I'm not gossiping about you, if I'm not letting the air out of your tires, then I'm loving you. And yet, love is not the absence of malice. Uh, Malice is something altogether different. Love is the presence of something. Love is the presence of something positive, an intention to bless another person, an intention to be kind to them, an intention to bring light and life, to be a life-giving presence in their life, that their life will be more free, more hopeful, more loving, more secure, because you will have been in it loving them actively, purposefully. It's an intention of the will. And wisdom from another century asks, what is love? It says, love is silence when your words would hurt. Love is patience when your neighbor is curt. Love is deafness when a scandal flows. Love is thoughtfulness for others' woes. Love is promptness when stern duty calls. Love is courage when misfortune falls. Love varies by situation, but it's always looking at other people, the the people around you, not just people. It's easy to love people on the other side of the planet. You just Facebook like some cause, and you think you've loved them. But love is, 
is, is right here, right now. The people next to you, the people around you, the people you work with, the people you see on the playground, the people you're related to, whether you get along with them or not. And it's always asking that question, how do I need to contort my own self in order to be a blessing to them? A doctor, a surgeon by the name of Richard Seltzer talks about an occasion in his life. He says, I stood by the bed where a young woman lies. Her face is post-operative. Her mouth is twisted in a palsy. It's clownish. A tiny twig of a facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She'll be like this from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that, nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut that little nerve to her face. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the everlasting lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they? I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have made who gaze at and touch each other so generously, so greedily. And the young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say. It will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and she's silent. But the young man smiles He says, I like it. It's kind of cute. And all at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. And unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close that I can see how he twists his own lips in order to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. What is love? Love is doing what is best for other people, even contorting ourselves, our comfort, our ease of life, our own priorities, our own issues, our own agendas, in order to be a servant to them, not in a codependent way where you need them so desperately that you do whatever it takes to make them happy. That's not love. You're using them and they're using you. Love is when you, out of the overflow of your heart, not because you need their love back, but simply for their sake, can love them in a way that's making the choice, not even what they want, but what they most need. Love is doing what's best for their life to protect their soul. I've got a picture of a little boy here named Jeremy. Jeremy Triantafilo, and that's his cat, Tara. You may have seen online or in the news about two years ago this little stories, uh, this little boy's story. He's from Bakersfield, California, and uh, the surveillance video of the apartment complex that he lives in with his family caught an interesting encounter. This little boy was attacked. A neighbor's dog, uh, very dangerous, a very violent dog, had somehow escaped and attacked this little boy. And there's a video of it because this little boy 
was not on his own. This little boy. The contest between cat and dog score a big one for cat tonight. A toddler on his bike was ambushed by a neighbor's dog, and then a fearless furball came flying in at lightning speed, ready to rescue a little friend. ABC's David Wright shows all of it caught on camera. Four-year-old Jeremy Triantafilo was riding his bike, minding his own business yesterday, when a neighbor's guard dog appeared out of nowhere. The home security cameras rolling as dog grabbed boy and cat came to the rescue. That's right, cat. Watch closely. That black flash on the right side of the frame is Jeremy's kitty cat, Tara, pouncing on the pooch, chasing him off saving little Jeremy. Until you looked at the videotape, you didn't even know that the cat was involved? No. We both kind of, you know, kind of gasped and were like, holy cow. The cat adopted the couple five years ago, following them home from the park one day. When Jeremy was a newborn, she'd climb into his crib and curl up beside him. An unusual bond for a creature that, by nature, tends to be fairly aloof. To have her with no regard for her own life, fly at the dog to protect him. I've never seen anything like that. This was round one, round one to the kitty cat, huh? Yes. (laughs) Jeremy has some stitches from the dog bite, but he'll be just fine, thanks to Tara. She's a hero. David Wright, ABC News, Bakersfield, California. You see a cat. Uh, showing a kind of love that very few humans are able to show. Uh, Love is putting someone else first, ahead of your own interests, doing what's necessary so that their body, so that their soul can thrive. Uh, We've got, I think, can we pull up a frame by frame, our next picture here? Um, You know, I mean, you look at this, and there's this little boy, and there's this dog, and then who is it that inserts themselves right in between the two, but this little black cat named Tara. I think we've got another photo here. Um, Yeah, you know, that cat, that cat loved that little boy. That cat uh, put that little boy ahead of itself, even sacrificing. I think that's our last slide there. Let me see, do we have another? Uh, Yeah, we'll come back to that one. That's a different cat, so we 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 can blank that out. You know I'm going to have a cat video and probably a cat story later. I mean, it's just inevitable on a family Sunday when you put me up here. Um, But yeah, love, love is putting someone else first. And that gets us really to our second point. Love is putting somebody else's needs ahead of your own. And the second point that Jesus is really making here when he talks about love is that love always requires sacrifice on your part. Sacrifice on the part of the one doing the loving. He talks about becoming a slave to another person, becoming a servant to another person. And he puts himself forward as the model saying, the Son of Man did not come to be served, that is to get his own needs taken care of, to suck life out of other people so that he can feel secure and safe and confident and strong. Instead, he came to do just the opposite, to be the one who lets others suck life out of him or more properly, freely gives life for the sake of of others. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for others, to sacrifice intentionally, to give up something valuable like your life. It's the heart of what love is. It's sacrificing your priorities and your comfort and your interests and your security to bless them in some other way. Uh, One author, a guy by the name of David Simmons, 
uh, talks about an experience he had with his children, uh, Helen and Brandon. Uh, I believe it was back in the 80s or the early 1990s, back before helicopter parenting, when you could sort of drop your kids off at the ball. Uh, but he shares this story. He says, I took Helen, who was eight years old, and five-year-old Brandon to Cloverleaf Mall to do a little shopping. And as we drove up, we spotted a Peterbilt 18-wheeler parked with a big sign on it that said, Petting Zoo Today. And the kids jumped up in a rush, and they asked, Daddy, Daddy, can we go? Please, 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 can we go? And he said, sure. And he flipped them both a quarter and walked into Sears. And they bolted away to the petting zoo, and he says, I felt free to take my time looking for a scroll saw. Uh, a petting zoo, he says, consists of a portable fence erected inside the mall with about six inches of sawdust and a hundred little furry baby animals of all kinds. And kids play with their, their, you know, their baby goats and their you know, baby sheep and all sorts of stuff, chickens and you name it. And they, they pay their money and they stay inside the enclosure enraptured with all these squirmy, warm little creatures all over the place while mom and dad go shopping in the mall. He says, a few minutes later... I turned around and saw Helen walking along beside me. I was shocked to see that she preferred the hardware department at Sears to the petting zoo. Recognizing my error, I bent down on her level and asked her what was wrong. She looked up at me with those giant, limpid brown eyes, and she said sadly, Well, Daddy, the petting zoo cost 50 cents, so I gave Brandon my quarter. Then she said the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. She repeated our family motto. The family motto was love in action. She had given Brandon her quarter, and no one loves cuddly, furry creatures more than Helen. So what do you think I did, he asks. Well, it's not what you might think. As soon as I finished my errands, I took Helen to the petting zoo, and we stood by the fence and watched Brandon go crazy, petting and feeding all the animals. And Helen stood with her hands and chin resting on the fence and just watched Brandon. I had 50 cents burning a hole in my pocket, but I never offered it to Helen, and she never asked for it because she knew the whole family motto. It's not love in action. It's love is sacrificial action. Love always pays a price. Love always costs something. Love is expensive. When you love, benefits accrue to another person's account. Love is not for you. It, it's, it's, it's not, love is for you. It's not for me. Love, love gives. It doesn't grab. And Helen gave her quarter to her little brother, Brandon, and wanted to follow through with her lesson. She knew she had to taste the sacrifice. Because love is sacrificial action. Love always requires sacrifice. That's uh, what Jesus is saying to us here when he talks about being a slave, when he talks about giving his life as a ransom, when he talks about not being served, but serving even at the cost of his own life. I heard a story. It was set back probably, oh, I don't know, 30, 35 years ago, maybe more. Uh, it was about a uh, group of missionaries in uh, Kampala, 
Uganda. It was toward the tail end of Idi Amin's reign. His dictatorship was crumbling and falling. The government and social services had crumbled and fallen. And these young missionaries from Europe and America were in their hotel room praying, asking, God, show us how can we make an impact on this place? What do we have that we could offer them? And they looked around and they had a lot of higher education. They had a lot of degrees. They had a lot of life experience. They had, you know, expertise and training in various areas. And yet as they looked around, what they saw was trash was piling up everywhere. And nowhere was there more trash than the biggest trash pile of all the trash piles, the one right by the city market. And so they went to, you know, government official and they sat down with them and they said, we would like to take out your trash. Now, at that point of 140 trash trucks in the government's arsenal to fight the refuse, uh, there were only two that still worked because the army had taken the batteries or the tires or the spare parts out of the other 138. They had looted the entire fleet of them. And so these missionaries took the only two surviving trash trucks in Kampala, Uganda, and they took them down to that giant mountain of trash at the city market. It was the most disgusting trash because this trash was the innards of all the animals that were being butchered in the market. It was the rotting vegetables that they could no longer sell. It was the filth. It was disgusting. It was vile. And what they did is they then climbed up onto that mountain of trash and they began to herd all of that garbage, all of those organs, all of that rotting stuff into these two trash trucks. And as they did it, uh, a crowd started to form because uh, um, these were a bunch of Mzungu. Is that right? Silly white people. You know, I think, I don't know about the silly. That might be optional. But white people. I mean, white people had come to Africa in the past. They had come to Africa to rule it. They had come to Africa to purchase slaves. They had come to Africa to steal people and kidnap them into slavery. They had come to Africa to tell Africans how to live their lives. They had even sent some missionaries to Africa to tell Africa how to live like Europeans. They had, many, many Mazungu had come to Africa, but they had never come to Africa to take out the trash. And so reporters started showing up. People started taking photographs. Some Africans started climbing up to help them take out the trash, to help load up these two trash trucks. And, and as, as journalists started to swirl about them, they started asking questions. They wanted to know, is this a new political movement? Is this a new political party? Is this an uprising? What's going on? Or is this some kind of movement? And one of the Africans said, yes, it's the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God comes. When the kingdom of God comes, when the Lord of love comes and places his love upon you, it leads you not only to do what's best for other people, but to do so sacrificially because love always has a price. And if you are not feeling the price you are paying, then you might be tolerating them from a distance. You might be ignoring them. You might be using them, but you aren't loving them because love always has a price. Love is putting the other person first and self-sacrificially at your own expense. Jesus says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Okay. Jesus says, what is love? Love is doing what's in other people's best interest. Second point, 
Love always requires sacrifice. You have to be their slave. Thirdly, how can you actually get that kind of love? Because you cannot give something away if you don't have it yourself. You have a toy truck. It's your prized possession. Your friend wants a toy truck. You can give him your toy truck. Why? Because somebody gave you a toy truck. But you can't give a toy truck away if nobody's ever given you a toy truck. And when it comes to self-sacrificial love that puts other people first, you will not be able to give away that kind of love for their sake, not for your own, but for their sake, that they might be blessed. Unless somebody has done that for you first. Um, Let's go to that next cat picture. Um, This is my little baby boy, Socks. I've got two cats, Socks and Leela. Leela's a little older. She's a toy girl, a toy tiger. She's got tiger stripes. Um, she's a designer cat. Socks came from the pound. Uh, Socks was a little baby cat, and uh, he was picked up, I think, in Jefferson County. And they, they get kittens. They, they, I guess kittens there are like squirrels. I don't know. They, they had a lot of kittens. They were going to put them all down. And uh, rescue agency stepped in and rescued Socks with his litter mate. And, uh, and I then went and, uh, and got him and, and paid the price and brought him home. And little Socks, he was so tiny, and, you know, the big paws, outsized, just an adorable little kitten. And he was very quiet, and he was very shy. And for the first week, because I already had a cat, Socks had to live, eat, breathe, and sleep in the kitchen uh, with the door shut because uh, Leela would just kind of hiss at him under the door because somebody was in her territory that smelled kind of like a cat. And so uh, for the first week, just to get them acclimated, uh, and they were fine after about a week, they, you know, Socks came out, and Leela promptly licked him clean, saying, okay, if we're going to keep you, then we've got to get your hygiene standards up. But, but what was interesting is Socks, he had been neglected and abandoned and almost put to death and rescued and then left alone in solitary confinement for most of a week. And that first night when Socks got to sleep in the bedroom with me and Leela, he immediately tunneled under the, the covers And he began, as I was falling asleep, I started feeling this sandpaper on my chest. It was kind of awkward. And I don't know if you've ever felt a cat's tongue. But uh, cats, when they really love someone, they clean them. And uh, I fell asleep not really thinking. Uh, It was a little ticklish, a little painful. But when I woke up, my... And I'm allergic to cats, by the way. Um, (laughs) Love always has a cost. But when I woke up, my chest was bleeding, swollen, mass of, it looked like ground hamburger meat, and yet I never stopped him. Well, he never did it again, but but that first night, because he was so loved. He had been set free. He had been loved, and in the only way a kitten knows how, he wanted to return that blessing, responding to the love of rescue by loving the big cat who took him into his family by cleaning him. That's love. Uh, It's self-sacrificial, and yet you can't give it until you receive it. In this case, even a little kitten giving love because he received it. Friends, if your love cup is empty, if you are finding yourself growing critical or negative, if you find yourself grumbling about God or grumbling about other people, if you find your temper getting short with those who are around you, if you find yourself playing over, again, your spouse's something that your spouse did or something that your mom or dad did, 
playing it over in your head again and again, if you're finding yourself becoming unforgiving or apathetic, it's because your love cup is not filled with the grace of Jesus Christ. And you need to go to the cross. Go to Jesus because you will not be able to love until you are loved, until you're experiencing his love, experiencing his grace. Go to the cross where he hung to forgive you. Receive his love. Let your, if your heart is bitter, that's okay. Let him love your bitter heart. Let him forgive your bitter, bitter heart. Let him set you free, breaking the chains, unlocking your cell, untying your ropes. He says he came precisely to set captives free by paying their ransom so that you would no longer be a slave. Receive that as your spirit critical. Let him love your critical spirit. Are you apathetic? Let him love you in your apathy. Let him love your selfish heart and love you and fill up your cup of love and mercy and grace. Let that wash over you and then and only then will you have the power to live a life that is loved because a life that is loved is a heart of mercy, a life of love for those around you. Love me doesn't produce love. You can talk to your spouse all night and day, and you can go through the Bible and show them all the commands that God gives them to love you. You can point out all the obligations they have to love you. You can point out all the duty and responsibility that they have to love you as their spouse, and it won't produce an ounce of love. But if you say, I love you, I love you elicits love in response. And Jesus is saying, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. He is giving you the power to love because by loving you, he is freeing you in turn to love. Love is costly. What did Jesus have to pay in order to love you and set you free from a life of bitterness and anger and apathy and pride? What was the price he had to pay in order to pay your ransom and gain your freedom? It always has a price. It's always costly. And yet what he paid was his life. Think of the story of a judge not too long ago. It was on Facebook. It was in the news. Who convicted a man of his crime. And then the judge stepped down. The man had been a veteran. And he stepped down and he paid the man's fine so that then the guilty could go free. That's paying somebody's ransom. That's sacrificing yourself for their sake. I have another photo. This is of a, a guy named uh, Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds. Uh, Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds, his platoon was part of the 422nd Regiment. And in December of 1944, his regiment landed in Nazi Germany. They were a group of untested soldiers. They were entering the final stages of the war. And December 19th was the day that Edmonds and his men were captured in the Battle of the Bulge. It was the last major Nazi offensive of World War II. It caught the Allied forces off guard. Edmund and his men stood little chance, and they became prisoners of the Nazis. On Christmas Day of 1944, Edmonds and the other soldiers arrived at Stalag 9B, a prisoner of war camp known as Bad Orb that had housed more than 25,000 soldiers at a time. 30 days later, Edmonds 
and the other non-commissioned officers were moved to Stalag 9A with 1,275 other men. And as Master Sergeant, Roddy Edmonds was the senior non-commissioned officer among all of the men. On the prisoner's first day in that POW camp, the German intercom system cracked to life. They said that only the Jewish prisoners of war were to fall out after morning roll call. At this point in the war, the Nazis were already implementing their final solution, their plan to wipe out Jewish people from all of Europe that led to the killing of six million people just because they were Jewish. They were killed in camps like Auschwitz, Birkenau, like Dachau. And that plan now extended to Jewish prisoners of war from allied armies. Edmund spoke to his men after the intercom fell silent, and he resolved, saying, we're not going to do that. The Geneva Convention affords only name, rank, and serial number, and so that's all we're going to do. All of us are falling out. An article on CNN's website mentions that Edmonds was a committed Christian. It mentions that twice. The next morning, all 1,275 soldiers stood at attention in front of their barracks. The commander of the camp was furious. He stormed up to Edmonds. He grabbed him by, by the shirt and he shouted at him, All of you cannot be Jewish. And Edmonds answered, We are all Jews here. Standing next to Edmonds was Paul Stern, a 19-year-old Jewish soldier who heard Edmonds' words in the exchange with the base commander, We are all Jews here. I'm commanding you to have your Jewish men alone step forward, he barked at Edmonds, the commanding officer. And Edmonds reminded the commander of the Geneva Conventions, telling him that he was entitled to his prisoners' names and their ranks and their serial numbers. The commander pulled out his gun and he pressed it right up to Edmonds' forehead and threatening to murder him on the spot. Stern recalls, you will have your Jewish men step forward or I will shoot you here and now. And Stern remembers Edmund's reply. If you shoot, you'll have to kill all of us, and you will stand for war crimes after we win this war. The major turned red. He was furious at having been challenged by a prisoner of war. Then he put his gun back in his holster, and he walked away, and the men went back to their barracks all of them. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you. He stepped out of line, and he was willing to take the bullet. And when he faced the bullet of God's wrath, God's wrath did not flinch, and God's wrath did not step back down. But Jesus took it, and he took it to the full. This is what Jesus talked about, about the cup the cup that his disciples would never be able to drink, not the way he drank it, the cup of God's wrath, which he drank, and he drank it all the way down to the dregs. He did it, friends, because that was the cost of love. Love always has a cost. It always requires sacrifice, and he paid that cost willingly because there was one thing that he could not live without, and that was you. He loved you. He loved you so that you could go and love one another. Friends, you'll never be able to drum up love by self-will or biblical resolutions. 
you will only be able to love the way that your friends, your coworkers, your family, your parents, your children, kids on the playground, the people who talk about you, the way they need you to love them. You will only be able to love that way if you drink of the love of Jesus and drink it deeply, let it wash over you and fill you with his security, his affection, his commitment, his loyalty to you. Because he will love you no matter what. No matter what you become, no matter what you do, no matter what you've done, no matter where you end up, no matter what you see when you look in the mirror, if you are in Christ, he will love you always and forever. I want to end with a children's story here. Uh, We've got a slide, I believe. This is called I Love You, Stinky Face by Lisa McCourt. And uh, it involves a little boy who is worried that he will do something that his mother will not forgive. And so he's arguing with her and he says, but mama, but mama, what if I were a super smelly skunk and I smelled so bad that my name was Stinky Face? And she says, then I would give you a bath and sprinkle you with sweet-smelling powder. And if you still smelled bad, I wouldn't mind, and I would hug you tight, and I'd whisper in your ear, I love you, stinky face. But mama, but mama, what if I were an alligator with big, sharp teeth that could bite your head off? Then I would buy you a bigger toothbrush for your big teeth and make sure that you brushed them every single night so they'd stay healthy and strong And if you had a sore throat, I would stick my head right inside your enormous jaws to make sure you were okay. And I would say, I love you, my ferocious alligator. But mama, but mama, what if I were a terrible meat-eating dinosaur with razor-sharp claws that ripped my sheets to shreds every night while I slept? And I would give you plenty of meat to eat, if that's what you like. I would sew your sheets back together every day because, after all, ripping them would would be an accident. And I would tuck you into your newly mended sheets every single night and say, I love you, my sweet, terrible dinosaur. But mama, but mama, what if I were a swamp creature with slimy, swelly seaweed hanging from my body and I couldn't ever leave the swamp or I would die? I would build a house right next to the swamp and I would stay with you and take care of you always. And when you splash to the surface, I would say, I love you, my slimy little swamp monster. But mama, but mama, what if I were a green alien from Mars and I ate bugs instead of peanut butter? Then I would dress you in colors showed off your nice green skin and I would pack your lunchbox with beetles and spiders and ants and grasshoppers and the tastiest bugs you ever had and I would pack a note with all the bugs that said I love you little greenie bon appetit but mama but mama what if I were a cyclops and I had just one big gigantic eyeball in the middle of my head then I would look right into your gigantic eye and say, I love you, my little cyclops. And I would sing you a lullaby until your one gigantic eyelid got droopier and droopier and it finally closed and you fell fast asleep.
friends. It's when we were his enemies that Christ died for us. He doesn't care what kind of monster you're going to become or what you see when you look in the mirror or what you don't want anybody else to know about you. He sees it. He knows. And if you are in Christ, he washes you clean and he loves you. He loves you always, no matter what you've done, no matter what kind of big one-eyed cyclops or green scaly monster you've become. He loves you. And as that sinks in, you too will love. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we give you thanks 